Well, it could hardly be said that the antics of myself and my high school buddies could be called anything but wise. You guys want a couple stories from the (laughs) mid-90s? Okay. January 1st of every year from the time I was a freshman through my senior year in high school, January 1st in Idaho, think 15 degrees, sometimes single-digit degrees, at lunchtime, me, Steve Elgin, Paxton Quigley, Kurt Maxwell, would hop in our truck, head out to Narrows Bridge, kick off the snow from the bridge, strip down into our underwear, jump into the water 40 feet below, breaking through sometimes little thin sheets of ice, climb up the cliff, put on our clothes, go back to school, completely hypothermic. Why? So we could claim to have had first jumps at Narrows Bridge in Gooding, Idaho that year. Wise? Probably not. (laughs) There was one time where we decided that we were going to take the high school rock. How many of you guys remember having high school rocks that you would paint on? Well, our arch nemesis was Wendell, Idaho, another small town there nestled into the valley of southern Idaho. So we decided to take a tow truck and head over to Wendell, Idaho, and we pulled their rock out into Main Street, destroying all of their pavement. Then we rushed over to the field, the Wendell High School field. I was from Gooding High School. We took diesel, and in the center of the field, we poured a gigantic G, and we lit it on fire. And I'm not kidding you. At my 10-year reunion, you could still see the discolored G in the center of the Wendell football field. Wise? I don't think so. Cody Aldridge showed up one time, and he said, Hey, guys, I've got a 60-foot ski rope and a set of water skis in the back of my Bronco. It just so happened that there was an irrigation canal that was just wide enough to water ski in with a road going right next to it, right next to the high school. So at lunchtime, we ran out and decided that Cody would do 45 miles an hour down the road next to the canal while I was on the back of a 60-foot ski rope water skiing as teachers were flooding out of the high school screaming, what are you doing? And then the final one. Me and Matt Harrison decided that not only did we want to do a senior skip, but as the wise seniors that we were, we wanted an all-day, all-school skip. (laughs) So we started spreading the word that there was going to be an all-school skip on a Friday. We made all the preparations that morning. We went, and we, remind you, this was before I was a Christian, we went, and we got the beer. Everything was all set up at lunchtime, and there Matt Harrison and I sat on the bridge at Narrows waiting for not only all of our senior class to show up, but all of Gooding High School to show up for a day of partying and revelry, and instead uh, the sheriff, Steve Jones, (laughs) showed up. (laughs) (laughs) He just walked up looking at Matt and I, shaking his head, going, not wise, fellas, not wise at all. (laughs) Look, we thought that we were hot stuff. And in actuality, we were morons. (laughs) Now, I don't want to offend you if you're 17 17 years old and you're a male in this room, but I just want to give you some pastoral counsel from an adult perspective. Whatever you're deciding to do if you're a male and you're 17, it may not be as wise as you think it is. (laughs) It's interesting to me that the word sophomore is made up from the very words that Paul is using here in this passage from a Greek family of words, sophos, 
and moros. And so the word sophos or sophia means wisdom, and the word moros or morea is the word from which we get moron. Sophomore literally means wise moron. (laughs) Somebody that thinks they've got it all figured out. Now, our moronic activity as sophomores and high school students, it was really driven by what? It was driven by a need for significance. It was driven by a need for position. It was driven by a need for popularity. And so we adopted wisdom from the world and wisdom from the mind of 15 and 16-year-old men. And our wisdom, when applied, caused us to jump off a bridge in January into freezing cold water. Our wisdom, when applied, without mature wisdom overseeing us, caused us to burn fields and drag rocks into the main streets of small towns and do all, I could tell you thousands of stories (laughs) of what was actually completely moronic. Now, this is what Paul was dealing with in the city of Corinth, in his little church that he had planted there in Corinth. The Corinthians had adopted wisdom from the world and wisdom from their own mind, and they were applying it, and in so doing, because they were seeking significance, they were seeking acceptance, they wanted to one-up each other, they wanted to name drop and be associated with other certain people that they considered powerful or popular. As they applied wisdom, they actually divided from one another, they actually began to destroy one another, they were actually engaged in very dangerous activity. And they thought they were so wise, and really they were morons. They were sophomores. And so what Paul is doing here in the book of 1 Corinthians is he's bringing a pastoral and a fatherly rebuke to the worldly wisdom that the church was walking in, and he's pointing them to a wisdom that is beyond themselves, to a way of living that not only brings safety to them, but safety to others. He's pointing them to a wisdom that is beyond themselves, beyond the world, and he's pointing them to what would actually move them from living a moronic life, a foolish life, to a full life, a joy-filled life. And the way that Paul does that is not by rebuking and admonishing them to change their behavior. Paul first says they've got to get down to the root of what they believe, Paul admonishes this parade of fools, this company of morons, with the gospel. He brings them to the foot of the cross where he says there is a wisdom from God that is gracious and good. Though it may seem like folly to you, following the resurrected Jesus, entrusting yourself to him, walking in his ways is the wise way, and it's the way that will bring what you're looking for, significance in God's eyes, satisfaction, acceptance, popularity, and peace in the midst of the kingdomly realm. You'll have all of these things when you apply the wisdom of the cross. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're actually only going to focus on verse 18. Next week, we'll pick up in the rest of the passage and talk about the differences between these two points of wisdom. But for this morning, I wanted to highlight for us verse 18, where Paul says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Let's start there with the word of the cross. What exactly is Paul pointing them towards? 
What exactly is Paul trying to get them to see and understand and believe? He says, I want you to look at the word of the cross, the gospel, even though it's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. First of all, the word of the cross. If we go back here to verse 17, we see that it is simple. The wisdom of God is simple. It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty black and white. Paul says there in verse 17, I, didn't send, I wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then he says this little kind of nuanced description of the way he preached the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The word of the cross is not seven steps to the most successful you. The word of the cross is not some sort of strategy that you apply to becoming great. Those are all wisdom ways of the world. The way of the cross, Paul says, I won't compromise its power by complicating it with big words and strategies and complexities. He says, my goal is to give to you the simple black and white Wisdom of God as it's found in the cross. Now, he was rebuking something there culturally. The Corinthian culture loved something called sophistry. Sophistry. The sophists were entertainers. They were the stand-up comedians of the day. They were the professors and the philosophers of the day. And the entire culture loved being entertained by their oratory skill. And what the sophists became known for was saying something really well while not saying anything at all. And the culture ate it up. Corinthian culture loved to go and fill stadiums full so they could sit and listen to a man say nothing, but he said it so well, would be the Corinthian culture's idea of a good speech, good communication. A number of years ago, Sprint put out this great commercial, commercial series with uh, Malcolm McDowell and James Earl Jones. Do you guys remember this? James Earl Jones with his big baritone voice and Malcolm McDowell with his very British wit. And they were simply speaking as if it was a regular phone conversation. So there's one scene where, where uh, James Earl Jones is speaking to McDowell and, and they're in, obviously in some mall situation. And Earl Jones in his gigantic baritone voice is saying, so... Did you say you're in the ladies' section, or are you over by the men's shoes? And McDowell would respond, I told you, dear sir, I'm over at the men's shoes. Well, I'm simply looking. And so they go on and on. And the hilarious thing about it was, it sounds so awesome because it's James Earl Jones. And it's this, this British wit, and it's this way of saying things, even though they're saying nothing. And that's the whole idea that was going on in Corinth. They loved listening to clouds with no rain. They loved looking at false fires with no heat. And they ate it up. And Paul says, sophomores, listen to me, you wise morons, Corinthian church. I'm not going to divest the cross and its message of its power by stooping to this need for eloquence or intellectual acumen or oratory skill. Now, 
It's interesting to me. Before Paul goes on in this next section, and I'll describe this in more detail next week, just so you don't think that Paul was some layman, he actually now, as a means of rebuking the church, he parts the curtain on his own ability, on his own intellectual skill. He actually uses the very terms and the very ways that a sophist would communicate to rebuke the Corinthian church. He plays with the words and he sets up his sentences and he does exactly what a sophist would do. And what Paul is saying is, hey, uh, I'm no amateur here. I can do this. I can run with the best of them. I'm as smart as they are. I'm as eloquent as they are, but I refuse to draw you in with those things. I want you to be drawn into the message or the word of the cross. What exactly is the content of the word of the cross? First of all, two things this morning. Very simple. The word of the cross. What is the message of the cross? What is wisdom from God? Number one, it is a message that highlights our personal guilt and our shame. Wisdom from God, the word of the cross, is first a message that highlights It explains, it says to us that we are personally, responsibly guilty before God. Now, we do not, none of us, myself included, like to hear this message. From the time of Adam to this day, we are experts in blame shifting. We are so uncomfortable with the notion of personal guilt and we flee that sense of shame as if we were a cat around the swimming pool. (laughs) Culturally, we have been trained that we are not responsible for the actions that we have taken, the thoughts that we have thought, the deeds that we have done. There is an inward, sinful desperation to rid ourselves of guilt And the only way we know how to do that is to plead not guilty. But the message, wisdom from God by the word of the cross is we are guilty. We seek to, like Adam, the woman made me do it, like Eve, the serpent made me do it. We seek to blame any other person or circumstance and point the finger anywhere but at ourselves when we come under that sense of guilt, when we come under that sense of shame. And so in our culture, it's very common. Well, it's because my dad did this and this and this that I did this and this and this. In some cases, it's because of my circumstances and this situation that I did this or I thought that or I acted this way. It was this, it was that, it was the serpent, it was the woman. The cross comes, the word of wisdom from God comes and says, I'm highlighting for you that you indeed did do this. Now, here's an interesting thing. Francis Bufford, who's a British apologist, he says in his really provocative book called Unapologetic, He says that guilt is an instrument of self-discovery. What? That sounds crazy. Here's what Spufford is arguing. He's, He's arguing that when we come to grips with the fact that we indeed do it, did it, 
when, when we actually come to grips with the fact that what we've done bears shame, that our attitudes and our actions, regardless of what our dad did to us, regardless of what our circumstances were, regardless of what led us to those actions or influenced those actions, whether internally or externally, when we come to grips with the fact that we are guilty, we are at the beginning of self-discovery. Self-discovery, which is what all of us want. Here at Taproot Church, we say that the process God is in with you is making you fully you. But the beginning point of you becoming fully you, you becoming fully human, you moving from sophomoric wisdom to God's wisdom is knowing yourself as you truly are and the message of the cross, the word of the cross is indeed that you and I are truly guilty. We cannot know ourselves fully and truly. We cannot begin to find healing and transformation until we are able to sit comfortable, as uncomfortable as it is, in our own skin with that sense of guilt and no finger pointed. We cannot truly become freed from our shame and find fullness of joy and acceptance and peace and significance and a sense of identity in our hearts until we are able to sit in our own skin with that sense of shame and say, I did this, I thought this, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. I did, I did, I did. And so the message of the cross, its beginning point is horrifically hard to start at. And it flies in the face of what our proclivity inwardly is, point the finger out, And it flies in the face collectively of what our culture says we are to do, which is, no, you don't need to feel that guilt. You don't need to be aware of that shame. You actually need to be justified in your guilt. You need to act like it's not there. That's sophomoric wisdom. That's wisdom from the world. That's wisdom from men. That's jumping off a bridge in January in your underwear. That's lighting fields on fire. That's water skiing behind a 1978 Ford Bronco in a canal. That's trying to get your whole high school to cut school and being arrested by the sheriff of your local town. It's wise moronism. And so there's a a depth of humility that breaks in over God's people as the message of the cross applies wisdom. And there's no ancient philosopher or thinker who would say that the starting point of wisdom is pride. Humility is that point where wisdom truly begins to engage with the human heart. And the word of the cross brings us face to face with our guilt. And that instrument of self-discovery is what causes us to turn inward and say, okay, I am willing now to sit and look at myself as I am, and here is where the gospel gets so good. Because the word of the cross is first a highlighting of our guilt and shame before God and others, but number two, it is a heralding of God's perfect grace and shalom for you, for me. The word of the cross is the message that there is grace for our guilt and in our shame, God will be peaceful for us and towards us and with us because of his infinite mercy. The most influential pastor in my life currently who's living and not dead is Tim Keller. And Tim Keller summarizes this idea saying this, 
the gospel is this. We are, most, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Just paraphrase that for us on our screens. The word of the cross says that we're more guilty and shameful in ourselves than we dare believe, while simultaneously, as we sit in our guilt and shame and we stop pointing the finger, in that moment, there we can know ourselves, and we can also, in Jesus Christ, because of the word of the cross, know ourselves as being more loved, more cared for, more accepted in Jesus than we could ever imagine. This is where transformation begins to occur. This is where you and I become fully human, fully yourselves, no longer running from what we've done wrong, no longer trying to point to everybody else who's done us wrong, but simply saying, here I am and what I've done wrong, and God, you know me, and God, you love me, and God, you forgive me, and God, you accept me beyond my imagination. By grace, you produce shalom, as we've been talking about in this church for about a year now. You make things the way they ought to be. You bring peace into my heart and peace into my relationships. And so the gospel, the word of the cross, wisdom from God, is both humbling and absolutely liberating and empowering. It is humiliating and so satisfying. It's not a message from the world. You won't find words like these. You won't find counselors apart from biblical worldview who speak like this and say things like this. You won't hear the culture crying out, feel the weight of that guilt, and then feel the warmth of that love lifting that guilt off because that's what true humanity is. That's who you truly are. And it's as you recognize and experience God's love for you and acceptance of you that there's an empowerment that leads you out of that sophomoric way of living into ways of wisdom. You begin to seek and discern why you do what you do and why you don't do what you do, and it's replaced with, I don't need to do this sinfully because I'm accepted in Jesus. I don't need to not do that because Jesus has taken care of it, and there's this transformation that occurs. That brings us to our second point, and we'll get ready to wrap up on this. Only two points this morning. The word of the cross is wisdom from God, but the way of the cross creates two camps of humanity. The Bible and Christian theologians from the time of Paul all through the history of humanity has made clear there are two ways of living, two camps of humanity. And these camps are not divided the way that the world divides. We divide over, oh, they're upper class, oh, they're the needy over at Transform Burian today. That's a worldly, sophomoric way of thinking about humanity. It is utter moronism to look at a man with a different color of skin and say, I'm different than you and better than you. You see, sophomores divide over silly things and they destroy each other. The Bible, the cross, the Apostle Paul, Christian theologians from Augustine to Luther to modern day thinkers have seen that what the cross does is it creates two ways of living Two camps of humanity. One camp, black, white, red, Jewish, Gentile, perishing. 
living out sophomoric wisdom to their death, the other camp being saved by the cross, by grace, by Jesus. Now, it's interesting to me, here in verse 18 again, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing and to those who are being saved. These camps of humanity are on tracks and there's a progression moving forward. There's a process being saved. There are those who are moving towards ultimate salvation and fullness of humanity and fullness of you being you and fullness of guilt being removed and fullness of joy. And then there's a camp of humanity saying, we're going to continue to jump off bridges and water ski down canals and light fires in fields because we believe that this is the pathway to significance and joy and peace all the way to their death until they're perishing. And in this life, those pathways continue until the moment that cancer kills you or the car accident kills you or by whatever means this life comes to a close. Now, let me ask you something. and Let's talk about it a little bit. Paul says that this word of the cross to sophomores, he says this word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Why? Why would the cross of Jesus and the message of the gospel be folly? Why would it be considered, considered moronic to be a Christian? Let me just give you a few reasons here. Number one, the word of the cross to those who are perishing is foolish because it is mysterious and it is miraculous. It is mysterious and it is miraculous. I want you to think about this. We laugh. Oh, you, you've got a rabbit's foot in your car. You believe in that stuff? Oh, <laughs> you saw a UFO. Oh, you're so funny. Poor you, you moron. That's what we do, right? Oh, <laughs> you believe that you can see auras around people and that the squirrel has God in him as much as God has God in him. <laughs> you moron, right? Listen to what we believe, okay? We believe that God has revealed himself as three persons but one. That makes total sense, right? One but three persons but three but one. We believe that God has revealed himself as a man who's fully man but also fully God. Oh, by the way, he was born of a virgin. That makes sense. <laughs> we believe that this man, born as a Jewish peasant, literally in the middle of nowhere, got himself in trouble with the Roman Empire, said a little bit too much to get himself in the sights of Caesar, and got himself crucified. And we say, we believe, those who are being saved believe that this Jewish peasant in the middle of nowhere who was humiliated and put up in the most horrific way is the means by which God has removed our guilt. Oh, and by the way, we also believe that three days later, having been beaten to a pulp by professional executors, Roman centurions, he rose from the grave and ascended unto the Father, where he is now seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's moronic. <laughs> we are morons. We are fools for Jesus. Do you see that to perish, though, is to say, that's so foolish, I won't place my faith in that. To perish is to say, Science says resurrection not possible. It's foolish. And so the word of the cross becomes foolish. Number two, why is the cross foolish to those who are per perishing? It is, the cross is the anti-story of our culture and the way that we understand power and heroism. Now, track with me. 
Um, I haven't seen it yet, but Batman versus Superman, any one of our Superman hero movies, is there ever a point in any of those hero movies where the, the, the individual is, is absolutely, completely demolished, and then the movie ends? No. But that is what the story of the cross is. The story of the cross is that power doesn't come by God coming down with his Superman cape and flashing lightning out of his eyes and telling all the fools of the world to obey him. The cross seems foolish to our culture and to the man who is perishing because it's the backwards way of power. It's the way up is actually down. And the greatest display of God's power was him submitting himself to the power of rebels who crucified him and put him in a grave. It's why Jesus taught us that those little tiny human beings that were up front here, it's so backwards to the way we think, but they are the representation of what power is, what righteousness is, what goodness is in the kingdom of God. It's so backwards to us that weakness is actually the means to strength. Down is the way to up. There's this interesting contrast with this. Uh, I don't know if it's the political con. Uh, the political climate that we're in right now, but I've been inclined towards reading all of these dystopian novels. So I just finished George Orwell's 1984. I don't know how many of you guys have read this thing, but holy moly, that is a dark book. And at the end of it, there's this very uh, graphic illustration of how the world thinks about power, how men who are perishing think about power. So the protagonist, uh, his name is Winston. He's in this environment where uh, a totalitarian socialistic government has come to rule all of the world. And he gets busted with what they call, what Orwell called thought crime. He's thinking his own free thoughts. So he's taken into what they call in Orwell's 1984, the Ministry of Love, which is actually a place of torture. <laughs> and Winston is there being tortured by somebody that he actually thought was like him, somebody that he thought he could trust, but actually turned out to be uh, a bad guy on that team. And he as he's being tortured, the, the torturer comes to him, and he's a senior leader in the socialistic totalitarian party, and he says to him, Winston, do you know why we go for power? Do you know why we want power? And Winston says, you know, he gives him a list of reasons, and, and, and the man tortures him some more, and then says, no, here's why. Now listen to this. I think it's so illustrative of, of the reality of our hearts and the way we think about power. Orwell says, or this man says in the novel, the party, referring to the socialistic government, the party seeks power entirely for its own sake. We're not interested in the good of others. We are interested solely in power. We're not interested in wealth or luxury or long life or happiness. Only in power, pure power. I think that Orwell, through the medium of the novel, was just honest enough with the human heart to say the way it is with us. We want power for the sake of power. And we understand power in this world, and wisdom from this world says that power is to control. Power is to be over. Power is to have our way. And the word of the cross comes in, and it seems like complete moronism. The way of power is to get yourself hung up, crucified, Jesus, in the words that he speaks to us as the church, 
The way of power is when you get punched, give them the other cheek to punch you again. The way of power is to love your enemy and pray for them. This is foolish if you're a sophomore. If the ways of the world are the ways in which you choose to walk, the way of the cross is going to be complete moronism. A couple more and then we'll move on and be done. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing because it strips us of any self-glory. The word of the cross says you cannot do anything to justify your guilt. It flies in the face of world's wisdom and man's wisdom. All of religion, all of philosophy, all of the thinking and working parts of humanity have all said we must work hard to get right. The responsibility is on us. We can do this. We can collectively come together. We can create the utopia. We can change the world. We need more education. We need more of this and more of that. We're going to do it. And the word of the cross comes in and says over and over and over to every generation of all of humanity through all of history, you can do nothing. You are utterly broken on the inside. And what you do only brings more guilt in the eyes of a holy God. And that, for somebody who is committed to finding their own way, tightening up their bootlaces, strapping on their belt, and getting it done, is foolish. It's foolish. What do you mean I can't do anything to attain righteousness, to gain ultimate good? And so the word of the cross crushes that, and it seems foolish. And then finally... The word of the cross does reveal the depth of our own brokenness. And in our culture, um, (laughs) our culture, the one taboo, the one thing that we're not allowed to do is feel like we're wrong. That's the one thing that our current culture says. You can't feel like you're wrong. You can't acknowledge that you're wrong, that you've done something wrong, that you've said something wrong, that you've hurt somebody, that you've been hurt by... You can't do that, our culture says. You've got to point the finger as much as possible, but the word of the cross comes and it says you have to sit in the midst of this. Now, to those who are being saved, this is the process of turning. Those who are being saved, being saved is the process of coming to grips with, oh my goodness, I think I've been applying the world's wisdom right here, and now I'm going to turn to the cross. I think I've been trying to overcome my own guilt and shame by pointing the fingers and, and, and just not sitting in this and actually feeling it and taking up responsibility for my own identity, my own growth. And so the way of salvation is hearing the word of the cross and saying, okay, maybe this isn't so foolish. Maybe what I think is God's foolishness is actually God's wisdom. And what appears to the world to be the epitome of moronism is actually the epitome of God's grace and shalom towards me. So I'm going to turn to him now by faith. And the process of salvation is this one step at a time of God by his grace revealing to us where we've been trusting in the world's wisdom, trusting in the world's ways, trusting in the world's standards of success, trusting in the world's ideas of what is good and right, and turning from that in a good old Bible word that we love at Taproot Church called repentance where we repent from sin, and that means that we don't turn and say, okay, God, I'll get it right now. No, that's a sophomore turning to God. It's turning to God saying, I can't get it right, but you have gotten it right for me. 
It's turning from this need from significance and, and power over others to God, you, you, you took ultimate place of weakness for me so that I could be empowered by you. You rose over that so that I could be empowered by you. I'm turning from this. I'm gonna have the worship band come on up and we're gonna wrap this up by taking communion this morning. Communion is that moment where we as Christians come to remember our guilt but then also remember the depth of God's grace for our lives. And so people will be standing up here up front to serve the communion elements. Communion is a simple piece of bread that will be dipped in a cup either filled with wine or grape juice. And the Christians will be coming forward and they'll be taking that bread and they'll dip it in the wine or the grape juice because that's what Jesus told us to do. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. What he was saying is, Every week, I want you to gather as a community of of fools. And I want the offense of the cross to penetrate deep down into your heart. I want the scandal of the cross that, that exposes us for what we are to break us down to this point where we find ourselves saying, okay, it's true. I did do wrong. Okay, I have been shameful. And then to hold that bread and to hold that, that cup, that meal with Jesus, And remember, and right now, I am infinitely loved, infinitely forgiven. Communion is the time where we are able to come to our God with all that is broken inside of us, and he holds us in our brokenness, and we don't need to come to him and say, okay, Lord, this week I'm going to get it right. This week I'm not going to do guilty things. But instead we come and we say, Jesus, I remember that your blood was spilled for me and I am forgiven and washed. Transform me and empower me. And should I fall this week either into accidental sin that I'm not even aware of or into full-blown, gnarly, nasty, I'm just gonna rebel sin, I know I have this cross that holds me near and dear. And if you're perishing this morning, you're, you're saying, that's foolish. What? That's so gracious. That doesn't make any sense. It makes sense when you come to grips with the word of the cross. (laughs) The scandal of grace and shalom that God provides through the cross, it's beyond your reckoning. One may walk away saying, this grace means I can go and do as I will. No, you're a sophomore. You're a moron. If you can come to the blood of Jesus and experience the forgiveness and the grace of God and walk away knowing what he took for you and say, I will continue to do willingly and joyfully what killed him, you have not yet met him. The cross calls us to repentance not by anger and wrath, but by gentleness and tenderness. And so I invite each of you this morning to come to the cross. I'd ask that everyone who partakes of communion this morning that we We here at Taproot, we hold the bread in our hands and we wait to partake together because what really unites us is our foolishness. (laughs) We together unite around this cross and we partake together. If you're here visiting and a Christian, please feel free to to partake. And maybe this morning uh, you're not comfortable with this. You're like, oh gosh, this is overwhelming. This is like way too much. Just, Just sit and watch. Nobody, nobody is judging. Nobody cares. Just sit and watch. Watch and learn and listen and think about what's been said. But you too, even if, you, even if this may be the first moment where you're realizing, maybe the pathway that I have been looking for is here. 
maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe it seems foolish to like really have to sit down and look deep inside myself and face all that gnarliness, but I'm going to do that. Do that today. Do that by faith.